one of the things I've learned over the last several uh, weeks um, or in years of life in uh, the faith is that God has a good sense of humor, does he not? <laughs> um, I was, and I say that because I was thinking about preaching from this passage, Jeremiah 32, several weeks ago. And uh, as I was, again, preparing for this morning, it seemed more than ever that uh, this was a most relevant passage. And it might not seem that way because um, if you look at Jeremiah 32, it's a very odd chapter. Especially because we come to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, as you might know, is known as the weeping prophet. Or even in some circles as the prophet of doom. So whenever you turn to the book of Jeremiah, there's sort of like this despairing, gloomy cloud that descends. (laughs) Because most of his messages are quite dreary and dark. (laughs) But even still... Jeremiah, uh, himself, he he almost despaired at the message that he was supposed to give. And I think you can see that even in this chapter. Because not only is this a passage in which we have a message coming from the prophet of doom himself. I, I call it a whammy of a passage because it contains for us one of the most boring events in all of human life. And that is a real estate closing. I don't know if you've ever been to a real estate closing, but they are not filled with the excitement that you get in other circles of life. (laughs) Of course, there's a lot going on at a real estate closing, especially if you're buying a house. It's exciting because there's a thrill of the new place you're going to get to uh, enjoy and put your artistic touch on. And the new place where you can uh, entertain and have enjoyment and have uh, fellowship with other people. And a new place where you can call your own. But before you get to all that, at a real estate closing, especially for buying a new home, you have to sit through all of that legal jargon and the towers and towers of papers you have to initial. So it's, um, I've been there, and I know the dread and the boringness of those situations. And not to droll you or put you to sleep already, but that's what we have in this chapter. It's a rousing chapter in the scriptures all about a real estate closing. And that might be a curious thing to come to on a weekend like this. But I think it's made all the more relevant and serious because this real estate closing is backdropped against one of the most severe situations in the history of Jerusalem itself. This scene, it doesn't just come from the prophet of doom. It also is backdropped against a season of doom, we might even say, for the people of Israel uh, themselves. Because right outside the gates, the armies of, of the Babylonians are besieging the city. And everything appears doom and gloom. Everything appears as if the world is ending, so to speak. It appears as if there is no hope. There's no way out. There's no good news. And I think that's what makes this real estate closing all the more perplexing. Because, you see, understand the scene. Uh, as it says in verse 2, look at verse 2 with me. Or I'll read uh, the, from verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 17th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison And was in the king of Judah's house. So the city of the Lord is being overwhelmed and overrun by the sieging armies of the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. Nebuchadnezzar has come up on the city. 
come up on Zedekiah's citadel, and he has come up and is now besieging the city. If you turn to 2 Kings chapter 24, you will notice this parallel passage which records for us this same scene. Second uh, Kings chapter 24. It gives us a little bit of background why Nebuchadnezzar is here besieging the city. If you look at 2 Kings 24 and look at verse 17. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah his father's brother, king in his stead, and changed his name to Zedekiah. So Nebuchadnezzar has input Zedekiah in place, king over Judah. He's put them there. Zedekiah was 20, verse 18, and one years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah, until he had cast them out from his presence, that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Verse 1 of 25, And it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his host, against Jerusalem. And pitched against it and they built forts and against it round about. So they're sieging this city. Because Zedekiah has betrayed a treaty, so to speak, between he and the king of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar has come up on it and he has now encircled the city and he is seeking to overrun it again. And not only that, not only is the city uh, encircled by invading armies, but the Lord's very prophet, the mouthpiece of God himself, is in prison. Again, verse 2 of our text, Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah, the prophet, was shut up in the court of the prison. He's put there. He's put there, why? Because of the prophecy that he had given Zedekiah. Look at verse 3. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Wherefore dost thou prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give the city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it, and Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him mouth to mouth, and his eyes shall behold his eyes, and he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there shall be, he be until I visit him, saith the Lord." Though ye fight with the Chaldeans, ye shall not prosper. Again, it's a word to the king from the mouth of Jeremiah that doesn't appear very good. It obviously offends the king. You are not going to prosper. All of your reign is going to be delivered into the hands of the Chaldeans. They will overwhelm you. They will win. Obviously, he doesn't like that. He doesn't like those words, so he throws him in prison. You see, this moment is a pivotal moment in the history of the people of Israel. This is the eve of the Babylonian captivity, we might say. Right before the 70 years of exile, which God's people would endure. And this is the prophecy that is coming up. Now, it doesn't sit well with him. But Jeremiah responds. He responds to this sort of inquiry from Zedekiah. Why would you prophesy this way? Why would you make this your message? And he responds, again, in a most unexpected way, by giving and relaying all the details of a real estate transaction. Listen to what he says. Look at verse 6. And Jeremiah, 
said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, thine uncle shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field that is in Anathoth. For the right of redemption is thine to buy it. So Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, Buy my field, I pray thee, that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine. Buy it for thyself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So Jeremiah, he's given this word from on high, a word from God. And in that word, Jeremiah's cousin, Hanamel, would come to him and and give him this business proposition to buy this piece of property called the field of Anathoth. You have to wonder, though, why he would even want to pursue this transaction. Here, Hanamel, his cousin, comes to him. You have the right of redemption. You have the right to buy this field. You want to buy it? You see, Anathoth was Jeremiah's hometown. This is where he's from. And in this day and age, whenever there was a a, a piece of property that was being sold, for instance, uh, especially during times of financial uh, shortfalls, you know, like a war, the next of kin was given the first right to buy that piece of land. The, as he says in verse 8, the right of inheritance. This was so the land could stay within the family. It could stay within that family. And this would make Jeremiah what is called the kinsman redeemer. He has the right of redemption over this piece of property. But the proposition that Hanamel gives Jeremiah is pretty ludicrous, is it not? Hanamel. I think was just trying to capitalize on a bad situation. He had this uh, piece of property that is plummeting in value. He has this land, a land that was part of an area which would soon be overrun by invaders, and he's looking to sell it. (laughs) Sounds like a crazy real estate deal. And so he proposes this very deal to Jeremiah. You need to buy this. (laughs) I've got a deal for you. (laughs) And by all accounts, it's a really terrible deal. (laughs) One that I think anyone in their right mind would just outright refuse. This is bad business. This land is about to be invaded. I'm going to sign this deed of purchase. And it's not even going to be mine tomorrow. Because it's going to be invaded. It's going to be a waste of money. So I'm surprised. That Jeremiah didn't just laugh at his cousin's face. (laughs) Are you kidding? I'm not going to buy that land. Yeah I know it's in the family. I know it means a lot to my grandma. But I can't buy it. That's a waste of money. But instead, notice I love at the end of verse 8 because he says, Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. That this didn't happen by accident. He knew that what he had felt the the Lord say to him was absolutely true. Because guess what? It happened that way. That all of it came true just as God said it would. Then I knew. And so what does he do? Verse 9, And I bought the field of Hanamel, my uncle's son, that was in Anathoth, and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. Despite all considerable rational logic, Jeremiah purchases this land. And only does he proceed with this real estate deal, he proceeds with this purchase, and he does it to the letter of the law. Notice again, verse 9, he hands over the silver, 17 shekels of silver, without 
haggling without negotiating. Have, have any of you ever bought a piece of real estate or property at asking price without negotiating first? Unlikely. Especially not uh, when that property is plunging in value because tomorrow or the next day or the day after, it would soon be not even be yours. It would be overtaken by an invading army. But watch what Jeremiah does. So he weighs the money, verse 9, even 17 shekels of silver. And look at verse 10. And I subscribed the evidence and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him the money in the balances. So I took the evidence of the purchase, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom and that which was open. And I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, and the son in the sight, excuse me, of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. And I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and this evidence which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may continue many days. So here, this is the scene. It's a real estate closing. He closes it and he makes sure that he does it lawfully. In all of the rights and customs, in all of the legality of the day, he makes sure that this is sealed and sure and confirmed and authorized. He draws up the paperwork. Jeremiah gathers witnesses and he signs the evidence of purchase, he says, and he seals it. He takes one copy and he delivers it uh, in the open record, sort of the public record like we even do today. And he takes another copy and he gives it to his apprentice Baruch. And he tells him to lock it away in an earthen vessel. Here you have all of the moments of the wonderful real estate transaction here in the Old Testament. And Jeremiah is authorizing this sale. It now belongs to him. Even for a moment, not for long, since Babylon was just outside the door. So why proceed with this deal? What was, what's the point of Jeremiah doing this? Well, notice he says, verse 15. He's telling his apprentice Baruch, he says, For thus saith the Lord, I did this because the God of Israel said to me, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed in this land again. He does it because there's a promise that's been given to him. He does it because the Lord has come to him and said that one day this field will be thriving and flourishing again. It will have houses and vineyards and it will have people that possess it. People that are now going to be exiled, they will one day come back to this land. One day, this people, my people, will one day possess this field. But I get the sense that even as Jeremiah says that, even as he's saying those words to his apprentice Baruch, he doesn't really believe them. He says them, but I don't even think he really believes them fully. Because watch what he prays. Look at verses 16 through 25. I'm going to read them again. Because if you listen to his prayer, you can sense Jeremiah's fighting, sense his groaning, sense his grieving of this moment. Listen to what he says. 
Now when I had delivered the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed unto the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretch out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. He sounds faithful there. But listen, listen to what he says. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands, and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty in work. For thine eyes are open unto all the, upon all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings, which has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day. And in Israel, and among other men, and has made thee a name at, as at this day. And has brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs, and with wonders, and with a strong hand, and with a stretched out arm, and with a great terror. And has given them this land, which thou didst swear to their fathers, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and possessed it, but they obeyed not thy voice, neither walked in thy law. They have done nothing of all that thou commandest them to do. Therefore thou hast caused all this evil to come upon them. Behold the mounts. They are come into the city to take it. And the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. That fight against it because of the sword. And of the famine and of the pestilence. And what thou hast spoken is come to pass. And behold thou seest it. And thou hast said unto me. O Lord God buy thee the field for money. And take witnesses for the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. You notice he opens by saying, I know that there's nothing too hard for you. But then he almost ends as he almost contradicts that very opening. But now the mounts, the Chaldeans, they've come and they're taking this city. Oh Lord God, I know it's because of your judgment. But I also don't know how this can ever turn out right. You can sense Jeremiah's questioning, perhaps his second guessing, perhaps his fear of the moment. Even though he knows that this message has come from God, he knows also, I don't know how you can make this right. I know there's nothing too hard for you, but this might be. This might be too hard. Because your people have turned away. Everything looks dark and dreary and like it's all going to end in doom. And not only that, I've wasted my inheritance on a property that's in a war zone. That's not going to be mine. You can sense Jeremiah's fear. He obeyed God. He followed through with God's word to him, but he was still wrestling with all of the circumstances and what they were telling him. And in that moment, I think definitely the circumstances of Jeremiah were outweighing his faith. I know nothing's too hard for you, but this looks too hard. This looks too difficult. And I'm still given this message. Jeremiah is weeping, perhaps, over the message that he has been entrusted by God. And notice that's when God speaks to him again. At the right moment, Jehovah speaks to Jeremiah the prophet. Listen to what he says. Then the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah uh, came, excuse me, then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, 
I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And notice, he, he restates Jeremiah's initial declaration back at him as a question. You said it. Do you really believe it, Jeremiah? You said that there's nothing too hard for me. But do you really believe that there's anything too hard for me? And he then proceeds to explain why all this is happening. Because the, the children of Israel have turned their backs on him. He goes on to explain that this is all coming about just as I said it would. Because my people, my chosen children have turned away. They've actually provoked me to anger. Look at verse 30. Listen to all the times it talks about the provocation of God's people unto God himself. For the children of Israel, it says, this is God speaking to Jeremiah. And the children of Judah have only done evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have only provoked me to anger with the work of their hands, saith the Lord. For this city hath been to me as a provocation of mine anger and of my fury from the day that they built it, even unto this day, that I should remove it from before my face. Because of all, excuse me, the evil of the children of Israel and of the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets, and the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they have turned unto me the back, and not the face. They've rebelled against God. They've turned their face away from God. They have provoked Him to anger, and so therefore this is the consequence of their evil. This is the right punishment for their ways. So Jeremiah might be thinking, yeah, but where's the hope, God? Where's the encouragement? Where is the light in this darkness? Notice, you have to get to verse 36. Because despite all of that anger, all of the fury that God relays and why he is allowing this to happen. He follows it up with such a sweeping promise. Look at verse 36 down through the end of the chapter. And now therefore thus saith the Lord. The God of Israel concerning this city. Whereof ye say it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. By the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. Behold I will gather them out of all countries. Whither I have driven them in my anger and in my fury and in great wrath. And I will bring them again unto this place. And I will cause them to dwell safely. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way. That they may fear me forever. For the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. That I will not turn away from them. To do them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts. That they shall not depart from me. Yea I will rejoice over them. To do them good. And I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. For thus saith the Lord, like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. And the fields shall be bought in this land whereof ye say it is desolate. Without man or beast it is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. 
Men shall buy fields for money and subscribe evidences and seal them and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin and in the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah and in the cities of the mountains and in the cities of the valley and in the cities of the south. For I will cause their captivity to return, saith the Lord. Despite everything that was about to come about, God says, I will not leave or forsake my people. Think about how stunning that promise must have been. That even still, it appears dark and desolate and all doom and gloom. And God says, I will bring my people unto this place once again. That the captivity, it won't be forever. They will one day come back to this place. And they will not only dwell here safely, but I love how he says, I'm going to plant them here. They're going to be secured here. And yes, my people turned their back on me, but I'm not going to turn my back on my people. I'm going to fulfill all the words of promise to them. In this time of destruction and war and ruin, it will come to an end. It won't be forever. This is the promise God himself gives To his people on the very eve of the darkest time in his people's history. That this dark time, this dark moment will not last. That there's coming a day when I will gather everyone back together again. That those who are scattered will be brought back. His word to Jeremiah. I think it was... That he was at work. That Jehovah is still working. Even when it doesn't appear like he's working. That there's still a greater plan to be fulfilled. Even when it doesn't look like there is any type of plan. And I think the wonderful good news of all of this comes when you just think about what has happened. Jeremiah has bought a piece of property during a war at a very high price. He has paid an exorbitant amount of money for a piece of property that no one wanted. For a property that was doomed to be destroyed. The gospel of this passage comes when I think, when you realize that you are the piece of property. You are the land that was bought at such a price. You are the piece of property, the sinner that no one wanted to buy. The property that was doomed to eternal destruction. Yet God himself has purchased that property at an incredibly high price at the price of his own son. This is what he has done for you. God spent way more than Jeremiah did in order to exercise his right of redemption and become the kinsman redeemer to buy you back. He gave up his only son. He shed his only blood. He gave his very life for you. A piece of land no one wanted. A piece of property that no one wanted to buy. And he has sealed this deed, this evidence of purchase, not just with his own hand, but with the ink of his own blood. He has sealed forever that this land is mine. That this property, I have bought it back. 
I have redeemed it by my working, by my sacrifice, by my blood. And he has sealed and finished that work forever. It cannot be taken away. It's lawfully and legally done. This is what Jesus has done for everyone who is here this morning. He has bought you back at such a price. At the price of his own life. This is what he has established in the gospel. He has decreed this. You see, ever since the Garden of Eden, there's been a plan of redemption that has been set in motion. Remember the promise in Genesis 3.15 that on the very ground where Adam and Eve sinned, that God gave them the promise that one day a seed will come and will crush the head of the serpent. From that moment, he instituted a plan of redemption that all of the brokenness that had come into the world by sin would one day be remade and removed and eradicated from this world. And this mission is an unstoppable mission. It's a mission that cannot be thwarted. Nothing can stand against it. And I might even hasten to say, not even the coronavirus. (laughs) That cannot thwart God's plan of redeeming this world. He is at work, even now. The lesson that Jeremiah learned, I think we all must learn. That despite how things look on the outside, God is still at work. And there's a plan that we don't even know. There's a plan that we can't even see that he is bringing about. Because he is still king. You see, in Jeremiah's eyes, it was pointless to buy a piece of land in a time of war. When captivity and exile were right on the horizon, right on the door. But God was working behind the scenes to bring about this everlasting covenant. A covenant in which this land means more than just a piece of property. It means that he will be their God intimately and for eternity. So even now, we confess this morning. I will proclaim this morning that God is working. And he is moving and he is ruling even over this moment, even over this time, even when it doesn't appear as if he's working or moving or doing anything at all. You know, I was thinking about this, that my job as your pastor is to not help you understand the future in light of what's going on now. That would be kind of futile to do. I can't predict the future. I don't know what tomorrow holds, let alone the next hour. So I can't help you understand what's going, what's going to happen tomorrow in light of what's going on now. No one can predict that. No one can say for sure what that looks like. My job is to do just the opposite. It's to help you understand right now in light of a future that has already been established and decreed and finished for you. It's to help you understand that there's a future that has already been confirmed and certified and legally ratified by Jesus himself in his own passion and death. And he's secured that future for you. And what that means is that every single moment we are not out of his hands. Every single day we are not out of his attention. 
We are not out of his awareness of what we are grieving, of what we are feeling, of what is making us sad and depressed and distressed. There's never a moment we are, when, we are, when God himself, as it says in Psalm 8, is not mindful of us. That's why the essence of every sermon, just to give you a little secret, is just bringing the concrete certainty of what Jesus has purchased with his own blood and bringing that into right now. That one day there's going to be a day when all of this sickness is no more. All of this sadness is gone. Every tear is wiped away. And death has been gone forever. It's not this day, but there's coming a day when that's true. And it's bringing that certainty into the here and now. That Jesus has established that there's going to be a day without death and sorrow and dread. And fear and worry and stress. And he has done all of that for you at the price of his own life. That is what is true and certain. That is what Jesus has done for all of us. The aim of all of my sermons is to saturate them with the hope that has dripped from Golgotha's cross into the mud of Calvary's mount. Because that is your only assurance, your only plea, your only place of peace and safety and comfort and confidence. All of your anxiety and fear and worry is allayed in the truth, the certain truth that Jesus has bought for you a future which you could never secure for yourself. He has bought for you an eternity which you could never win or earn on your own. He has bought it despite you. Despite your actions. Despite your words. Despite your failings. Despite your weakness. He has bought it, yes, even when you might have turned your back on him. Guess what? He has never turned his back on you. And he buys for you a future. As your kinsman redeemer. And says, this land... It's going to thrive again. This land is going to flourish. My kingdom cannot be stopped. My mission cannot be thwarted by anything in this world. Yes, even coronavirus. Yes, even political corruption. Yes, even uh, international war. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop the kingdom of God from coming into this realm. So people are out there predicting the apocalypse. (laughs) Predicting this is the end. We're all doomed. No one can do anything. I think in that way, this moment especially is not that dissimilar from Jeremiah's. Instead of Babylon though invading our city, we have COVID-19 just outside our doors supposedly. But I think the end though, that the lesson is still the same. That God is still at work and there's nothing that is too hard for him. There's nothing that is too hard for this God who works all things out for his glory and our good. Even when it doesn't look good right now. Even when it doesn't feel good right now. 
His word abides despite our feelings, despite our circumstances, despite all of our worries and doubts. His word is true regardless. Whether Jeremiah believed in what God said or not, it didn't matter. What God said was true and certain and it would come about and it did and it will for you and I now. Regardless of what you are feeling, what you are stressing over, God is at work and his word is true. And he is your kinsman redeemer. Bringing all things together. For your good and his glory. Just as he says there. I love in verse 42 of our text. Yeah I've brought all of this great evil upon my people. But he says. I will bring them all of the good that I have promised them. (coughs) It is so sure you can bank on it. It is so sure You can count on it to the end of your days. Because God has promised to be with us. He has never left us. And he never will. This is the good news of Jeremiah. Let us pray.